It's Thursday, August 25th, 2016. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Paul Runyon, and tonight we present a discussion on two modern classics that hold up mirrors to modern society and recent history. George Orwell's 1984, written and published in 1949, and Ortega y Gasset's Revolt of the Masses, 1929. Both authors were socialists, and both were involved in the Spanish Civil War. 1984 by Orwell is called a dystopia and describes British post-World War II socialism evolving into a nightmarish, double-plus-ungood, Stalinistic tyranny, where everyone is brainwashed into believing that war is peace. Freedom is slavery, and ignorance is strength. In Revolt of the Masses, Ortega y Gasset disputes the liberal dictum that universal literacy and education can ennoble and uplift the common people into a body politic capable of rational and reasonable self-government. Hence, democracy must be controlled by an intellectual elite. Does this sound familiar? Both these books are classics and more important today than when they were written. And we'll try to put them in a hermetic perspective for you. Sociology is the new black magic, of course. So, if you want to peek into the future from way back when, tune in and we'll part the mail. Now, in 1949, I was 14 years old. And my reading was mainly, at that time, Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan and John Carter novels. But my family did get Life magazine, and I always read each weekly issue. On July 4th, Life ran an illustrated condensation of George Orwell's 1984. The text was illustrated by cartoonist Abner Dean from the New Yorker magazine. Now, his artwork wasn't humorous. It was actually frightening in the style of the horror comics of a few years later. Dean captured the mood and tone of Orwell's story perfectly, and it almost gave me nightmares. Now, a PDF of this Life magazine feature is available if you wish to look it up. You can Google it. Now, this was my first introduction to 1984. A few years later, I read the novel, and I have since reread it several times. Now, during the Cold War era, that's 1950 to the 1990s, it was required reading in American colleges and even in some high schools. Now, to briefly summarize the plot, the novel deals with the tragic life of Ingsoc, that's English Socialism, I-N-G-S-O-C, English Socialism, party member Winston Smith, who works as a rewriter of history in the Ministry of Truth. His is a complex and demanding job because history has to be rewritten every day. The reason for this is that the world has been divided into three great superstates who are constantly at war with each other and changing sides and alliances on an almost monthly basis. Now, this situation exists because the political, economic, and financial structure of the world government needs constant warfare to keep the people employed, motivated, and controlled. Does this sound familiar? Hence the official maxim, war is peace. Individualism and independent thinking must be suppressed so that everyone remains focused only on the needs of the state and the victory that never comes. Hence the dictum, freedom is slavery. No historical precedent or current data that challenges the state or its programs is allowed. To even think about it is a thought crime. Hence the third maxim, ignorance is strength. To make a good story or a good horror story, Winston 
has to question this whole state of affairs and his life within it. The big question is, is all this falsification and rationale, double think and newspeak, necessary and justified? He works daily on the premise that it is, and that big brother, the immortal symbolic leader of the party, whose intimidating image stares down at his people from all walls, buildings, and billboards with glaring eyes that seem to follow you and the caption, Big Brother is watching you. But secretly, Winston thought crimingly suspects that Big Brother may not even exist and that present conditions are not better than they were before the revolution. Reminding us of that old joke, do you remember? After the revolution, we will all eat strawberries and cream. But, comrade, I don't like strawberries and cream. After the revolution, you will eat strawberries and cream, and you will like it, comrade. One of the mind control weapons of the party is language itself. They are in the process of reforming English into newspeak, a simplified form of communication whose proponents brag that their vocabulary actually diminishes yearly as they continue purging the language of unnecessary words. For example, we do not need the word bad. It can be replaced with ungood. And if something is really bad, it can be termed double plus ungood. The idea behind newspeak is that People think in words, and if their language is reduced, they will be incapable of conceptual and critical analysis. They will not be equipped to challenge party dogma. Now, you, now you, you texters can think about that. And I, I wrote this down. You texters with a capital U texters. Now, Winston starts keeping a diary of his anti-revolutionary speculations. Of course, this is a major thought crime. All party members have two-way television sets in their houses or apartments, and they are expected to remain under surveillance at all times. There is no privacy. Winston has an old London flat with a nook where he can write in his forbidden diary without being seen by the thought police. Now, the thought police use helicopters and ground-based security cameras to keep all London under constant surveillance at all times. And even smiling at the wrong time can be a thought crime. And does this start to sound familiar? You know, I mean, recently we've, we've been seeing that, that, that the Londoners are, are under constant surveillance in the streets. And, and, of course, we're all familiar with the eye in the sky, the helicopters flying around. <laughs> now, even smiling at the wrong time can be a thought crime. Winston has a girlfriend at work. They slip notes to each other in the cafeteria, like grammar school children in the classroom. The party is anti-sexual and has adapted a policy of state-controlled marriage for procreation only. And they use a radical feminist anti-sex league for young women to promote and justify this program. And, of course, this is based on the history of the Bolshevik shift from promiscuity to Puritanism during and after the Russian Revolution in 1918. And needless to say, Winston's clandestine romance comes to a tragic end. Now, let me digress a little bit on that one uh, and, and indicate that, yeah, uh, the Bolsheviks, when they, first, uh, when they first came in in 1918, they experimented with free love because they used that, you know, as part of their of their rationale to get themselves in power. Is, uh, but then they found out that the gross national product took a, took a nosedive, and so they, they decided that, Purit, that Puritanism had certain uh, advantages, and so, and so the, the Soviet godless, godless uh, um, Democratic People's Republic ha, uh, became very puritanical. And, and remained so all the way up to, the, to when it finally dissolved in the in the nineteen the nineteen nineties. Um, so um, also there was a novel that followed 
Orwell uh, on on the eventual end of British socialism called When the Kissing Had to Stop. Now, this was all promoted both, uh, you know, in very typical, very typical uh, Bolshevik style. It was promoted by radical feminism, and they used this anti-sex league that they created to uh, to promote this through, through the radical feminists. Uh, now, back to the summary. Winston has come to the conclusion that the party is in fact omnipotent and cannot be reformed or overthrown. He does believe that the mass of humanity cannot be suppressed, however, and he still has faith in the wisdom of the common people, non-party members, the proletariat, or as they refer to in 1984, the proles, the working class, who are taxed, ruled, and administered and propagandized by the bureaucrats of the party. And he goes out into the working class neighborhoods to talk to them, to find out if they remember how things were before the revolution and how they feel about their present state. And he discovers, as did Ortega y Gasset in 1929, that the masses have been educated beyond their intelligence, and they are only concerned with mundane issues. Still, Winston holds to his hope for their eventual enlightenment. You remember what Lincoln said? You can hornswoggle some of the people some of the time, and all all of the people some of the time, and some of the people all the time, but you can't hornswoggle everybody all the time. Well, Lincoln was wrong. Uh, according to De, uh, to Egasset, Lincoln was wrong. You can't hornswoggle all these people all the time. Now, one of the most disturbing plot twists in this tale of social woe is the character of Emmanuel Goldstein and his forbidden counter-revolutionary book, now, this book is supposedly the dogma of a secret counter-revolutionary brotherhood that Winston is not sure even exists, although he does acquire a copy of the book and suffers the consequences. We'll read a little, a little out of Goldstein's book in a while. Now, as it turns out, Emmanuel Goldstein, let's stop for a minute and, and examine that. Emmanuel, of course, is 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 the name for for Jesus of Nazareth, and Goldstein, of course, is obviously Jewish. So what we have here is an interesting symbolic combination of Christian altruism and uh, and uh, and uh, and, the, and the Jewish and the idea of the Jewish banking conspiracy, whatever you want to call it, combined because the communists uh, appropriated. Christian altruism, and and they weaponized it. They they realized that there is, uh, and and Christianity has conditioned the Western world to altruism. Whether there is a, a natural tendency among humans, then there may be a natural tendency among human beings to take care of each other in the less fortunate that Christianity uh, developed. But but uh, the Marxists certainly appropriated it, uh, starting off with the Illuminati who set the pattern for it, and uh, so. Emmanuel Goldstein, Goldstein, Einstein is a, is an imaginary character. He is an anti Big Brother created by the same inner party committee that created the party's immortal leader, Big Brother. The arch traitor and the enemy, Goldstein, is at the root of all anti revolutionary plots and conspiracies. His hawkish Jewish face, glares from TV screens, superimposed on legions of Eurasian soldiers marching toward the screen in daily propaganda sessions called Two Minutes Hate, in which all party workers are required to attend and to emotionally support with displays of anger and revulsion. Now, eventually, Winston is caught by the thought police and taken to the dreaded room 101 
in the ministry of love. Where he encounters that which he fears the most, rats. And after a series of interrogations designed to break his belief that two equals four, Winston finally concedes that two and two equals five and declares to the party and to himself that he loves Big Brother. And, of course, we're left to assume that having been redeemed, he will soon be vaporized and written out of history as if he never existed. Now let's uh, talk a little bit here about uh, uh, about uh, the brainwashing and the Ministry of Love. Now the Ministry of Love, of course, whose whose business is 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 is, uh, is hate and torture and brainwashing. Um, the uh, um, um, situation with uh, with uh, Winston and 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 his uh, and his confession is. Is should be similar to all of this. It's very similar to Arthur Korsler's Darkness and Noon. Uh, and, I, and I want to say that, that uh, George Orwell, he was a British socialist, and 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 we have to we have to admit that 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 right after World War II, uh, London was still was still you know had a lot of ruins and 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 uh, wasn't as bad as Berlin, but it was it it it, it was. It had a lot of ruins that weren't repaired, and uh, and so it was a kind of a dismal place when the British Labour Party, you know, finally took over and kicked Churchill out. You know, uh, Churchill was not a member of the later Labour Party. He was he was uh, definitely uh, you know uh, conservative, and, and they and, and as soon as the war was over, he won the war for him, and then they kicked him out, and the socialists took over, and uh, and but at the same time, over in Europe. At that time, and Orwell, who was a socialist, was aware of all this. Over in Europe at that time, the Soviets, under Stalin, the successor of Lenin, they were proceeding to loot Eastern Europe and completely dominate and loot Eastern Europe. They, the Russians went into, uh, into the countries in Eastern Europe and literally ripped the machinery right out of the, the, the floor of the factories and, and shipped it off to Russia. They looted all those countries, took everything, everything that they that they thought they could use out of those countries, left them destitute, and and they remained those countries, uh, you know, Yugoslavia, Czechoslovakia, uh, Poland, all those countries, Bulgaria, Romania, all those countries that they in Eastern Europe, they remained impoverished under the Soviet domination all the way up to the 1990s. And and uh, they, they they and and they were they were miserable and they were polluted and they were uh, it, 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 uh, it was it was a horrible situation, but um, um, so Orwell was aware of all of this and he was aware of the misery in the Soviet Union. Now I've had members of my family, myself. I, I didn't I didn't go over to Russia during the Cold War, but members of my family did, and my mother and 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 and, uh, and, and my and my dear lady they all they they went over there and actually visited visited uh, Russia during the Cold War, and they they reported to me the same thing uh, that we were being told that they were under surveillance the whole time they were there. The whole the country the Russia. Soviet Russia was 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 a nightmare for its own people, and and there wasn't any doubt about that. And Orwell knew about this, and he was trying to warn the British people with their socialism that they were that they were uh, developing that this was what could happen, and very well might happen if they proceeded along this along this path, uh, and and. That's one of the things about 1984 that we we should realize that it was a prophecy, uh, particularly directed toward British socialism, and also Orwell Orwell predicted 
as did many other people, predicted an atomic war between the United States and Russia in the 1950s. He predicted that. It didn't happen. Uh, well, the reason why it didn't happen was that we got the H-bomb and then the Soviets got the H-bomb very quickly. You know, they were uh, they, their sympathizers got it for them, you know, as we know. And so we had mutual deterrence. And whether that was good or not, I, mean, I don't know. But, we, but anyway, we did avoid that, that aspect. So uh, Orwell's 1984, we can be critical of it to this extent. It's kind of a Mad Max kind of a thing. In other words, it's sort of a post-apocalyptic, zombie apocalypse type of, type of story. And, uh, uh, and, but, but still, regardless of that, it tells us a lot of lessons and it gives us a lot of things to think about. Uh, like we're already, we are already at the point in this country where the average citizen, not just party members, members of the Democratic or Republican Party, but average working citizens, and working if you're lucky enough to have a job, but average citizens are under surveillance, and they're under surveillance almost constantly. And and if you think this is not true, we're we're on the verge. We got we, we got two way television now, and 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 it's, it's becoming more and more popular. And not only that, they know what you watch. And and pretty soon uh, they're going to be watching you. And if you've got a smartphone, they are watching you. And and uh, so so we're we're almost at that point. And in 1984, the helicopters are prowling around all all over the place. And of course, we already have that. We have helicopters and aircraft and drones uh, surveilling our urban areas and our suburban areas all the time. Uh, so a lot of what what uh, Orwell is predicting here in 1984 has already come about. Now, uh, and so finally, uh, now let's let's talk a little bit about here. It says when Winston finally concedes that two and two equals five, and now uh, this is sort of the end result of brainwashing. Two and two equals five. Let's let's get into that a little bit. All right. Winston Winston has certain beliefs that he holds. For one, he thinks that the proles, the non party members, the workers, the ones that are being taxed and propagandized or whatever, uh he thinks that they are the salvation and they are eventually going to going to overthrow this. Well, that's not true, but he thinks so. He hopes so. Also, Winston holds to certain things during the book. He holds to certain principles like, my God, two and two equals four. As long as I know that, I know I can think straight. I know that double think won't get me, you know, and because he, he deals with double think every day. You know, Winston's job is rewriting history. And and every day he rewrites history, and every time he rewrites something, I mean, you know, they these people they've divided the world into their and Orwell predicted globalism. He could see it coming. And they divided the world into these three great super states, and they're at war with each other, and every month they change sides. So every time they change sides, uh Big Brother decides that, that we got to rewrite history to indicate that we were always at war with Eurasia, even though last even though uh, last month we were we were at war with uh, with Europa, but but now we were at war with Eurasia. So we got to change. We got to change everything, and this means it's all the cross references. It's a tremendous job, and and um, and uh, now it wouldn't be that big a job today. Today it wouldn't be that big a job uh, for Winston as it was then, because then they didn't have computers. Well, Orwell did not did not conceive a, a big mainframe that could do this on with a, with a program. But uh, today we could. Uh, Winston would be out of the job today because if we wanted to do that, because uh, you could have a program that would that would cross reference all of the other and and, and make sure all the all the cross references were were corrected. 
so uh, Orwell couldn't quite conceive that. And yet, and yet I could conceive it because a few years ago, I did the IPB for the first OSAR, Tickle Character Reader for Books and Literature. And the OSAR was going to be, we were going to digitize the Library of Congress, all right? This was a machine that, yeah, when I'm doing the IPB, the, the, the Illustrated Parts Breakdown, which I did uh, for OSAR, uh, this, this machine was like a, it was like a Wurlitzer jukebox. And all these, these uh, that, at that time we had discs, and all these discs, and, 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 they, and, and they were on armatures, and, and, and this machine looked very much like a Wurlitzer, like an old Wurlitzer jukebox. But we were going to put the whole Library of Congress on, on, uh, on disc, digital. Now, you realize, of course, that once, and I realized when I was doing this, I was almost like Winston. I, I was almost felt like Winston. In fact, I did. I remembered while I was doing it, I, I, I felt like Winston Smith. Like, uh, my God, what am I doing here? I'm, I'm, I'm providing the machinery for totally altering history. Well, actually, uh, you know, you know, uh, I don't believe they're doing that yet. But what? But they come up with another plan. The other plan for for altering history. Is to snow it under. Is to snow it under and replace it. And if you don't think that's happening, look at all the remakes that Hollywood is doing. Look at all those remade remade movies. All the old movies that we we used to love. Like just to give you an example. Okay, Walking Tall. All right, what do we got? Walking Tall. We got a story of a Southern sheriff. A white guy, a southern sheriff, a redneck, and he's going to clean up this 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 rotten city full of full of all these uh, these uh, roadhouses with uh, all the gambling and 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 the porno and, and you know and and uh, and prostitution, all this stuff, and 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 so this this redneck sheriff, he's going to clean it up. He is going to clean it up. So we got to remake this. So what? So they'd remake it. He's no longer a white sheriff. He's a black sheriff. Yeah, so so we remake Walking Tall. And imagine how many other films like that have been remade. And, and the remakes, uh, the remakes cancel out the originals. In fact, I just, I just, I just read an article recently that people are sick and fed up with these remakes. They're 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 finally saying, oh come on, these some of these films originally they were classics. Why are they remaking them? Well, they're remaking them because they want to make them relevant. That's the way history is being rewritten today. Uh, but in Winston's, but, but what what uh, what George Orwell uh, uh, envisioned was an actual actual rewrite, and uh, which could have which could be done. Digitally, it could be done. However, uh, uh, it's being done another way, um, but it's still being done. And um, now, so this is, as the Irish say, the gist of, of 1984, the predictions. And so what have we asked, well, well, what does this have to do with hermetics? Because this is the hermetic hour. Well, that's a good question. Now, my answer is, that in spite of what we may want to think, or what I may want to think, there is a certain element of romanticism in communism. It may come as a surprise to some Thelemites, those of you who are listening who are Thelemites, but Grady McMurtry, the caliph, his master's thesis in sociology at Berkeley was titled the Bolshevik Revolution as a Magical Operation. Now, I must confess that I haven't read it. But then Grady D. 
didn't read my master's thesis at Northridge, which was titled Magical Cults and the Rise of Neo-Paganism in Southern California. So he didn't, he didn't read mine and I didn't read his. However, that was the title of his, of his master's thesis. Now, the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939, certainly epitomized the romance of socialism and communism. Volunteers from England and America, including George Orwell, fought against the socialists, against Franco's nationalist fascist forces. The Republicans were supported by the Soviet Union and the nationalists by Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. It was a dress rehearsal for World War II. And if you want to see just how romantic or romanticized it was, you can watch the film For Whom the Bell Tolls, 1939, with Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman, which, even though I don't agree with his politics, it just it happens to be one of the best films that guerrilla warfare ever made. Um, and uh, it's a very good film. Um, but, so there's a lot of romanticism involved in, in, uh, in, in, in communism and Marxism. Uh, to many English and American liberals, it was the good fight, the just cause. There is a long-standing belief, especially among European, English, and American intellectuals, that socialism is the only way we can achieve a just and free society. The belief that Christian altruism could provide a humanitarian balance in a free market society was supplanted with romantic religious fervor transferred to the socialistic state. And leaders like Joseph Stalin, the Man of Steel, or Big Brother, became deified like Roman emperors. Now this God-making is magical and is the inevitable end result of socialism. Hence, Orwell's dictum, freedom is slavery. Now, war is peace is a familiar echo of the belief that preparation for war is the best way to avoid war. History dictates, uh, dictatorships, Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Roosevelt, and Tojo were all socialists. The dictator knows he needs an enemy. After the Cold War ended in the early 1990s, we needed a new enemy. Orwell had predicted globalism and the arranged wars between the newly created regions. Now, Eisenhower had warned us about the military-industrial complex. War is big business, and it puts people to work, and it gives the country a focus. Also, war and terrorism create constant fear. In Orwell's London of 1984, the V-rockets were still landing and exploding, not coming from Germany, but from Eurasia, because fear is a political asset. Ignorance is strength. Perhaps the most depressing aspect of Orwell's novel is the emphasis on mass brainwashing and mind control. Following the Soviet model, Orwell applies these harsh measures primarily to party members, the petty bureaucrats that administer the state. In his Ingsoc society, the common people, the proles, are largely left to their own devices. Strict morality is not imposed on them, and they are controlled by taxes and propaganda. One might say that our society of today is a combination of Orwell's two classes. We have all the pornography we desire, but no privacy. But what about the thought police? Do we have them? You bet we do. We have political correctness and the social justice movement, reinforced by the radical feminists and a host of other empowered advocacy groups. Offend any one of them, and your reputation is ruined. You lose your job, and your liberal spouse will probably divorce you. But, you asked, was all of this inspired by Orwell? No. If we want an intellectual source for it, we might cite the cultural Marxism of the Frankfurt Institute established in Germany during the days of the Weimar Republic. This institution immigrated to the United States after the Nazis took power in the early 1930s. Uh, 
Okay, now, moving on to Ortega E. Gasset's little masterpiece, Revolt of the Masses. Aside from being a Spanish Red Republican, he was also something of a Platonist. He envisioned the society as outlined in Plato's Republic. He thought that socialism was the best way to achieve that end goal, and he was very suspicious of democracy. The main thing he accomplishes in revolt, and this is my opinion now, is that he destroys the liberal article of faith that society can, through universal literacy and education, ennoble and uplift the common people into a body politic capable of rational and reasonable self-government. He uses numerous examples in his compelling argument that there is no wisdom of the common man. And he must be guided and led by an intellectual elite. Looking at history from Roman times through the French Revolution and on to today, we have to admit that Egasset is right. As much as we would like to believe that all men are created equal, we must face the reality that they are not. We have to relearn the difference between a republic and a democracy. Now, I haven't uh, reread uh, Ortega E. Gasset's uh, uh, Revolt of the Masses uh, recently, as I just did uh, the George Orwell's 1984. I had loaned it to one of our to one of our members, and and uh, still out. So I ordered another copy, but uh, I came across a review. I came across a review of E. Gasset's book. Uh, by uh, on on the internet by Ted Chioia, and uh, you know this is uh, this is called the smartest book about our digital age was published in 1929, and I'm going to read this because frankly I read the review and I realized that that uh, that Ted had uh, had uh, really picked on a lot of things that relate to. Uh, 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 into the present uh, era, in Degas's book that I that I had forgotten, and I'm sure Ted won't mind my reading his review. I'm I'm citing him. It's on the internet. You can look it up. The smartest book about our digital age was published in 1929, and uh, and the subtitle is how Jose Ortega y Gasset's The Revolt of the Masses helps us understand everything. From YouTube to Duck Dynasty. Okay, so let me let me go ahead and read Ted's review to you, and and uh, and and also too, I strongly suggest that you look at uh, that at, at Life Magazine, nineteen four July fourth, nineteen forty nine, that that PDF with. Uh, Especially with Abner uh, Abner D's wonderful uh, uh, wonderful illustrations on 1984. Okay, here we go with Ted's uh, with Ted's review. I first read Jose Ortega y Gasset's The Revolt of the Masses more than 30 years ago. I still remember how disappointed I was by this cantankerous book. I had read other works by Ortega. Uh, who was born in 1883 and died in 1955, and had been impressed by the Spanish philosopher's intelligence and insight. But this 1929 study of the modern world, his most famous book, struck me as hopelessly nostalgic and elitist. And yet I recently read The Revolt of the Masses again, and with a completely different response. The same ideas I dismissed as old-fashioned and out-of-date back in the 20th century, now reveal an uncanny ability to explain the most peculiar happenings of the digital age. Are you, like me, puzzled to learn that Popular Science Magazine recently shut down comments on its website declaring that they were bad for science? Are you amazed, like me, that Duck Dynasty is the most watched nonfiction cable show in TV history? Are you dismayed, like me, that crappy Hollywood films about comic book heroes and defunct TV shows uh, have taken over every movie theater? Are you depressed, like me, that 
symphony orchestras are declaring bankruptcy, but Justin Bieber earned $58 million last year? If so, you need to read The Revolt of the Masses. You've got questions, and Ortega's got answers. First, let me tell you what you won't find in this book, despite the title, despite a title that promises political analysis. The Revolt of the Masses has almost nothing to say about conventional party ideologies and alignments. Ortega shows little interest in fascism or capitalism or Marxism. And this troubled me when I first read the book. Although in retrospect, the philosopher's passing comments on the matters prove remarkably prescient. For example, his smug dismissal of Russian communism as destined to failure in the West and his prediction of the rise of the European Union. Above all, he hardly acknowledges the existence of left or and right in political debates. Ortega's brilliant insight came in understanding that the battle between up and down could be as important in spurring social and cultural change as the conflict between left and right. This is not an economic distinction in Ortega's mind. The new conflict, he insists, is not between hierarchical superior and inferior classes, upper classes and lower classes. A millionaire could be a member of the masses, according to Ortega's surprising scheme, and a pauper might represent the elite. The key driver of change, as Ortega sees it, comes from a shocking attitude characteristic of the modern age, or at least Ortega was shocked. To put simply, the masses hate experts. If forced to choose between the advice of, of the learned and the vague impressions of other people just like themselves, the masses invariably turn to the latter. The upper elite still try to pronounce judgments and lead. But fewer and fewer of these, uh, of those down below, pay attention. Above all, the favorite source of wisdom for the masses in, in Ortega's scheme is their own uh, strident opinions. Why should he listen when he has all the answers, everything he needs to know, Ortega writes? It is no longer the season to listen, but on the contrary, a time to pass judgment. To pronounce sentence, to issue proclamation, Ortega couldn't have foreseen a digital age culture, but he is describing it with precision. He would recognize the angry, assertive tone of comments on the web articles as the exact same tendency he identified in 1929. He would understand why Yelp reviews have more influence than the considered judgments of restaurant reviewers. He would know why Amazon customer comments have more clout than critics in the New Yorker. And he would attend uh, an angry town hall meeting or listen to talk radio and recognize the same tendencies as described in his book. Recently, I had dinner with a friend who is affluent, educated, and a noted wine connoisseur. We were talking about Wine critic Robert Parker and other experts, and my friend asserted that he now relies more on wine advice from websites where anyone can post their evaluations of different villages. And if the mass mentality has taken over wine testing, what can we expect from film reviews or rock criticism? Of course, the rise of mass opinion comes at a cost. For example, music criticism is turning into lifestyle reporting. Even specialist magazines avoid dealing with any technical descriptions of what the performer is doing. And I have a hunch that the less critics know about the structure of music, the more likely they are to succeed today. The same tendency, outlined with precision by Ortega back in 1929, can be seen in numerous other fields where experts once reigned, and have now been replaced by the opinions of the masses. Strange to say, not only not all kinds of expertise are ignored nowadays, the same people who denounce expert opinion about movies or music will praise a skilled plumber or a car mechanic 
The value of blue-collar expertise is accepted without question. The same people who get angry when I make judgments about the skill level of a pianist would never question my decision to pay uh, more to hire a superior piano tuner. This is a peculiar state of affairs, but very much aligned with the revolt of the masses. Ortega also predicted the close connection between advancing technologies and those new and those new rude attitudes. He devotes an entire chapter to the coexistence of primitivism and technology. He understands that the rise of the new technological tools gives a global scope to the unformed opinions of people who, in a previous era, would have only focused on what was nearby and familiar. Above all, he marvels at the fact that the disdain for science, as such, is displayed with greatest impunity by the technicians themselves. Or put differently, skill in manipulating a technology, say, Instagram or the iPhone in our day has nothing in common with a seal for facts and empirical evidence. That shocked Ortega, but we encounter it daily in the web. I wish Ortega were around nowadays to comment on digital age culture. At one point, the revolt of the mass, in the revolt of the masses, he complains about a woman who told him. I can't stand the dance in which less than 800 people have been invited. So how would the Spanish philosopher respond to the crowd, to the crowd mentality that seeks out viral videos with hundreds of millions of views? And how would he emulate TV reality shows in which the best singers or dancers are determined by the verdict of the masses? And what would he think of political judgments shared by the millions in the form of 140 or fewer characters, character tweets. I can't do justice to all of this book's riches in a short article. On almost every page, Ortega addresses some issue that still resonates today. For example, the rise of consumerism or the possibility for barbarism to flourish in tandem with technology or the unbalanced specialization which favors science over the humanities or, in his words, the loss of prestige of legislative assemblies. You recognize all of these hot topics, don't you? Okay, we encounter these dysfunctional tendencies every day, but Ortega forces us to see them with a different perspective. And from the standpoint of up versus down, indeed, his book is more valuable for the speculations it will spur in a current-day reader than in the specific situations Ortega addresses, but isn't that always the measure of a timeless thinker? Now, I know that's somewhat disturbing in some ways, uh, and, um, and yet I think that Ortega um, says one very, very important thing, uh, that, that the masses... That's the mass of humanity really aren't as as smart as they really aren't as smart as they think they are, and the only reason why they think they are is because we have empowered them to think that they are and and uh, who is who's the we well uh the we are their educators, I suppose and uh, and uh, as I recall from reading the book, uh, he he really does attack this idea that H.G. Wells and others and others of the of the uh, liberal of the original liberal uh, establishment believe that all we need to do is make sure that everybody's literate, everybody can read, and everybody's educated. And then they will they will be able to make good decisions, uh, and and they will they then we will have a we'll have a a body politic or an electorate or whatever you want to call them that that will will do the right thing. 
at the ballot box and 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 whatever. And and what Ortega is is telling us is that this is certainly not the case. And from a you know from his point of view as a socialist, uh, he was foreseeing in 1929. Uh, he was looking at Mussolini in Italy, and uh, and of course. Uh, uh, Nazism wasn't quite on the on the scene yet, but but then again, you got to realize that Mussolini in Italy, uh, and then later Franco in Spain, and later Hitler in Germany, were all populists, and uh, this uh, and they they rode they they would not have taken power if if the masses had not supported them. So um, we have to we have to look at Ortega's message from that point of view. Anyway, these two books, as I say, uh, 1984, which which uh, is a um, uh, prediction of what can happen when, uh, when socialism uh, goes the way that it so often does, um, and, and uh, de Gasset's uh, Revolt of the Masses are two books that, uh, that if you really want to understand uh, the, the dark side of, of politics, you should read them. And uh, let's see. Next week. Next week. I don't believe we've done. I don't believe we've done a show on on uh, one of my favorite. Uh, Fantasy, uh, I call it fantasy novels. I don't know, called uh, Jurgen, nineteen twenty-one by James Branch Cavill, and uh, that has that is a fascinating book, and uh, I just added it as an addendum to to the Library of Magical Fiction and. In the first issue of the Seventh Ray, which we're reprinting, and I and I had forgotten to put it in the first time, so uh, I think I'm going to uh, to do uh, to, to review Jurgen next week, and uh, that I think you'll all enjoy, and uh, and if you haven't read it, you that will encourage you to read it. So until next week, uh, I think we've given you enough to sort of stimulate your minds and give you enough to chew on tonight and uh, we'll see you next week and until then good magic